From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. Hello and welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 138 for the week of May 9th, 2013. I'm Michael Bowling and I'm joined by my special guest, David Lesjack. David is a Disney historian and author. For more than 30 years, David has categorized Disney artifacts from World War II and life at the Disney Hyperion Studios. David wrote and self-published Tunes at War in 2000. This book documented Disney's involvement in the war. David was asked by Walt's daughter, Diane Disney Miller, to be a consultant in special projects at the Walt Disney Family Museum in 2007 and has conducted private research for Diane and loaned the museum 48 items from his personal collection for Gallery 6, which covers the war years. His largest project is the book on the history of the Hyperion Studio, which was the topic of his March 2013 Walt Disney Family Museum presentation. The book explores the history, physical expansion, and innovative and creative explosion that took place at 2719 Hyperion. David, welcome to the Diz Unplugged. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Michael. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you. Well, the name Hyperion is well known to Disney fans. It's the book publishing division of the Walt Disney Company, and um, the monorail in Disney California Adventure Park travels across the Hyperion Bridge as it, come, as it crosses Buena Vista Street entrance. But Disney fans may not know the significance of the name Hyperion in Disney history. So in 1925, Walt Disney was making the Alice comedies out of his storefront, and Walt decided he needed a standalone studio. Before marrying Lillian, Walt Disney and his brother Roy placed a $400 down payment on a plot of land between Griffith Park Boulevard and Morton Street on Hyperion Avenue. The neighbors were a gas station and an organ factory. And in 1926, Walt and Roy filed a permit for a three-room artist studio. And this was the beginning of the studio at 2719 Hyperion Avenue. So, David, your focus is the Disney history at this time in the 1930s and 40s. So what interests you in this period of Disney history? Well, I think it was um, what I call it as, as the foundation of an empire. And I think that uh, it, it's literally the foundation of an empire. Because if you look at the history of the Hyperion Studio, which covers the years 1925 through to roughly 1939, it's where the studio really developed a lot of... Uh, uh, innovations they either exploited or invented um, techniques that really propelled the animation industry um, from a, a standpoint back then where it was sort of crude animation rubber hose animation stretch and squash up to uh, when the the release of Snow White came out it was really regarded as a, a new type of fine art mm. now now we think of Walt Disney as being a pioneer in animation and the concept of theme parks, but that wasn't his career goal when he left Kansas City, Missouri, and came to Hollywood, was it? No, when he when he headed out west to Hollywood, um, he had intentions of becoming a live action movie director. And uh, when he arrived in uh, in Hollywood in, in July of 1923, um, the first thing that he started to do was he started to haunt the uh, all the big studio locations, Paramount and MGM and. And, and he was really trying to look for work as a live-action director. And, and when that sort of fell through, he decided to fall back on, on what he had known best at that time, and that was animation. Um, he contacted Margaret Winkler in New York City, who was a distributor. And 
I think part of the reason that Margaret eventually took him on, took the Alice comedies on, was because she was in the process of losing um, the possibility of losing Felix the Cat. And Felix the Cat was the, the big moneymaker for her at the time, and, and she was in negotiations with the creator of Felix the Cat, and she really needed something else to replace that, that series if it had fallen through. So uh, Walt sent her a sample reel of, of the Alice comedies, and uh, um, they came to an understanding, and, and she signed them up, and, you know, he started producing Alice comedies for her, and there was about 57 or 58 in the series that he eventually did for her. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Alice comedies, can you um, talk a little about what those were and how successful they were? Sure. Basically, what Walt Disney did was uh, what they did later with Roger Robin. He took um, a live-action little girl and put her in um, a comedy series where she interacted with various different cartoon characters. So they would they would film her, and it was silent film at the time, so they would film her doing her various actions and routines and comedic sketches, and then they would add the uh, the animated animated sequences later. Um, like I said, I think that ran about 57 or 58 uh, in length. The first one was done in March of 1924, and they ran through till August of uh, 1927. And um, fully fully half, a little little over half, were actually produced at the Hyperion studio. When they constructed the first building at Hyperion. Um, in 1926, January of 1926, they actually built a stage out back, and they shot some of the live-action sequences for Alice on that stage. Now, what led to Walton Roy's decision to move out of the storefront studio and build the Hyperion studio? I think that was that was just Walt's vision. Um, they they had first started their operation when when they got the Alice contract with Margaret Winkler. They they started working out of Uncle Robert's garage. And from there they moved, they rented uh, one room in a storefront, uh, the back of a real estate office, and then I guess they were expanding and they had more staff that they needed, so they rented the storefront next door. And from that they just made the decision that it was time to have their own sort of standalone studio. And uh, you were right, they paid $400 uh, down, uh, down, down payment, and that was uh, Lot 21 in the Ivanhoe tract, and that was located between Griffith Park Boulevard uh, to the west, and Monon Street to the east, Hyperion was the street that fronted the new studio, and then farther back was St. George's. And so they bought the they bought actually the third property to the east of uh, Griffith Park Boulevard. Now, a three-room artist studio doesn't seem very large for a movie studio. So how soon no, did Walt and Roy? Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it, and it wasn't. It was a, it was about a 32 by 38 foot building. Uh, that was constructed, and it was simple construction. It had a, a concrete plot, pad, wood framing, tar paper roof, sort of that Spanish-style uh, um, tile going around the perimeter of the roof. It had a skylight, and then the building was basically split into two components. Um, if you were facing the front door of the studio building, um, the window to the right would have been Roy Disney's office. The window to the left would have been Walt Disney's office. Uh, lined up behind Roy, uh, going towards the back of the building, were the ink and painters lined up behind Walt's uh, office going towards the back of the building would have been the, uh, the animators. Um, there was a washroom at the back of the building. There was uh, a door that went out back towards the Alice stage, and then there was uh, a camera room, a developing room. Um, there was a long table for whoever was assigned to do the backgrounds at the time. So it really was uh, a small operation. And I think as time went on and the studio became more successful, this is where they started to add little little additions here and there, little renovations, and 
and one of my uh, I, I, I've got a research team that's helping me out, and um, through my research team, we've been able to discover just over I think it's about 65 building permits that were um, issued for that property from 1925 through to 1939. So it really grew sort of in this organic manner. And, and Wilfred Jackson, who was one of Walt's early artists, basically said, you know, whenever Walt got a little money, he put a little addition onto the property. So, you know, it was really a crowded place to work, and it was added to just as, just as money came into the studio. Yeah, that, always, that seemed to be what Walt did throughout his life. When he got a little money, he, he improved something, whether yeah, it was... It, Exactly. That, that sort of was his philosophy. I think was, uh, you know, he was always pressing Roy to find the money. He 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 always came up with these great ideas, these grandiose ideas, these ideas that were cutting edge. And it was always up to, you know, this the story goes. It's always up to Roy. You know, Roy was the banker. He went to Roy to get the money, and and Walt came up with the ideas. And and Roy, who I don't think gets a lot of uh, as much credit as he deserves, he's the one that really financed everything. I think that's a good point. We we think of Walt always this being the creative genius, but we forget sometimes that if there wasn't a Roy being the financial genius, much of Walt's creativity may never have been realized. Yeah, and I, I, think, that, I think that's absolutely true. And um, if people want to read a really good book on, on excuse me, Roy's involvement at the studio, they should get Bob Thomas's book, which I believe is called uh, Building a Company. Um, came out a dozen or so years ago, but it's, it's a fantastic look at how Roy Disney was really, he really was an integral part of, of the Walt Disney Company. Now, in 1927 and 28, um, those were significant milestones in filmmaking history and in the history of the Disney studio. Um, in 1927, the jazz singer debuted, which was the first feature-length film of synchronized sound. And in 1928, Walt lost the rights to his most famous character at the time, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. But Walt saw these events as opportunities, um, how did these events affect life at the Hyperion Studios? Well, I think uh, I think the biggest thing was the jazz singer, uh, and you're absolutely right. It was the first feature-length motion picture with synchronized dialogue uh, that came out in October of uh, 1927, and then in March of 1928, Walt split with Charlie Mintz. Charlie Mintz had been distributing the Alice comedies, and then later the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series. So I think. Sounds the synchronized sound is what really caught Walt's attention. And in July of 1928, at a gag meeting, they used to have the gag meetings. They were usually at his house on Lyric Avenue. And he he uh, he came up with the idea. Actually, I think it was June of 1928, where maybe they should try to incorporate um, some sort of synchronized soundtrack because he felt that that would really set apart his his product. So they had, uh, Mickey Mouse was in development at that time because they had the split with Charlie Mintz, so he fulfilled his contract with him, and then he had Ub Iwerks working on this new series involving a new character called Mickey Mouse. They'd already had two films that were, were in the can, so to speak, Gallop and Gotcho and Playing Crazy, and then they decided maybe they should try to synchronize sound to the third Mickey Mouse cartoon, which was Steamboat Willie. So it was actually in July of 1928 that they ran the sound experiment at the Little Hyperion studio. So what they did was Roy Disney took the film and the projector out back. He took it outside because their, their film projector was quite a, a clackety, noisy affair. And so Roy projected the Steamboat Willie film through a back window down a hallway, and they had strung up a sheet um, in, in the area about where the animators were sitting. And behind that sheet was Walt Disney's office door. His office door had a window on it. 
So what they did was Walt and some of the guys, Les Clark, Ub Iwerks, Wilfred Jackson, and then all their wives and girlfriends gathered. And so Walt and the boys would view the film on the backside of the sheet through the window on his office door, and then they would make uh, noise effects, sound effects with tin whistles and, and little clacker things. And, and so the ladies and the girlfriends were on the other side of the sheet watching the film, and Ub Iwerks had actually rigged up a, a telephone to act as a speaker. And so they set up this little speaker behind the sheet, and they tried to synchronize their, their sound with the action on the sheet. And then throughout the night, they ran the film over and over and over again, so everybody there, all of the animators, could go on the other side of the sheet and view the action. And, and by all accounts, everybody that was there just thought it was, it was, it was the best thing that they had ever seen, the best thing that they, they had ever taken part in. Um, Ob, Ob Iwerks was apparently elated. Walt Disney was elated. Walt, Walt Disney actually said a quote along the lines, you know, it was awful, but it was fantastic. And then from there, um, they decided that, that that was the way to go. So what eventually happened was Wilfred Jackson, his mother was a, a music teacher, and he figured out a way to synchronize the beats of the music with the action on the screen by using a metronome. And so what Jackson would do is he would he would write up a, um, a bar sheet that um, accentuated when the beats of the music were. And then to that, Walt Disney created an exposure sheet which told the animators where the action had to land on, what beat the action had to land on. So between the bar sheet and the exposure sheet, they were able to synchronize the, the sound that they had to the, the action that they were animating. Yeah, I, I, when I imagine this scene, I was just thinking of just like the just the kinetic energy, the studio and the excitement as they just developed this and were testing it out. And I mean, it's just something so new. Well, you I mean, know. It, it was really interesting because if you read some of the accounts of that evening, um, I, you know, some accounts I've read were that this little sound experiment went well past midnight, uh, maybe even as late as two o'clock in the morning. And everybody was just so excited by the idea that they think, you know, it realistically portrayed, it realistically married the two elements together, that they were back at the studio at the crack of dawn to get working on it. That's how, that's how excited they were with, with this idea of marrying the sound to the action. Now, was the Hyperion Studio, the facility, equipped to handle this new era of films with sound, or did they have to expand? Well, what they did initially was they would take the film back east to New York City, and they would have the film recorded, or the sound recorded there. Um, Walt hit upon the idea. He, he did some research, and he decided to use uh, Cinephone, which was run by a fellow named Pat Powers. And Cinephone was actually a knockoff of the DeForest sound system. But Walt Disney, you know, he couldn't find any any of the big players like RCA. They weren't. They either weren't interested in his little project, or it was way too expensive for him to even think about. So for Steamboat Willie, it took them two attempts. But uh, I believe it was September uh, September 30th, 1928. After two attempts, they they had this successful soundtrack. And so initially, they would take as as each Mickey Mouse cartoon was finished, they would take the film to New York to be recorded. But eventually they signed a license with Pat Powers, and Pat Powers sent a Cinephone system out to the West Coast. Now, Hyperion was so small, they didn't have room to install a, a sound studio or a soundstage there at that time. So what they did was they rented out space at the Tech Art Studio on Melrose Avenue, and then they were able to do all of their sound recording there. And what's interesting is not only did they do their own sound recording there, but they went out into the field, and, and they actually had two trucks, and they rented out those two trucks, 
to other smaller studios where they would film um, a travel, a, a, you know, like a travel film or some of the B-grade movies that were being shot. Um, they would have, it was called the Disney Film Recording Corporation, and the two trucks would go out to the various sites around the Los Angeles area. And my friend Didier Getz actually uh, just transcribed a fantastic interview with one of the fellows that was involved with the sound trucks and, and just the amount of detail that uh, it was an interview done with Dave Smith. And the fellow who was in the sound truck, his name escapes me right now, but um, his recollections of just the amount of work that was involved hauling these huge cables and these huge batteries and these 100-pound boom mics up into the middle of nowhere, the canyons, when they were shooting, you know, B-grade westerns or whatever it happened to be, you know, it would be a 12- or 14-hour day to try to get all this sound in the can, so to speak. But um, Disney set up at TechArt Studio, and, and TechArt was actually um, started up around April 1929, the Disney Film Recording Corporation, um, and then they liquidated in December of 1935 because that's when they actually brought uh, RCA. Uh, they got into a licensing agreement with RCA, and uh, they set up a, a sound recording uh, studio at Hyperion. Okay, so uh, it's funny how we think of Disney as the studios, but this was also that they started their own business, going out and sort of contracting with other studios to record sound. So, uh, again, I guess a way for them to to bring in more income. Well, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, uh, the licensing arrangement was with, with Sinophone. I haven't been able to, to nail down the cost. But, yeah, no, absolutely, it was, a, it was another way to generate revenue. And they were, they were always looking at ways of, of trying to generate extra revenue. And that's where the whole, you know, later on in 1932, the whole merchandising thing came about with Streeter, Blair, and Kay Kamen. Um, and, you know, at one time, as far as merchandise goes, they were making excuse me, more, more money on merchandise sales than they were on film rentals at one point in time. So it was, you know, it was just Walt's philosophy. He, you know, money didn't, one of my favorite quotes about Walt Disney is, you know, money doesn't excite me, ideas excite me. And he saw money just as a tool to bring his ideas to fruition. And that, that, that quote, I've always liked that quote because it, it's absolutely true. You know, money was important, but it was a, just a tool for him to bring his ideas to fruition. And so any way that he could sort of try to generate extra revenue coming in, well, that would mean less reliance on the bank and bank and the financial institutions. And, and you know, he'd be able to pursue his, his dreams and his goals and his ideas. So, so as Walt and his animators became more creative and innovative technically and artistically, the studio had to grow to meet the demands of Walt's vision. So how did the studio change as Walt's dreams grew? Well, I guess uh, one of the first big renovations happened in 1930. There were, there were a couple of little, little renovations that happened between 1926 and, and 1930, but one of the big ones in 1930, they did a big expansion on the back of the building, and then they, they brought the front of the building, the facade, even to the sidewalk. Um, out front, and then 1931 was a huge year for expansion, and that was like a really big, major expansion. And they they put in what was a I call it an L-shaped animators building number one out back. That was a two-story building. Uh, right beside that, they put a sound stage, and then they had a, an outdoor restroom building as well. But animators building number one, um, that was a phenomenal building. It was two wings, and they were joined in the middle in a cupola, and on each floor in the cupola was a music room. There was music room number one and music room number two. And those two, those two rooms really became um, vitally important because uh, Walt was beginning to integrate music into the films, and, and then we've got all the sound dialogue, but that's where it all happened. 
each of the music rooms had a piano, so they would have a composer and a director. One was uh, Bert Gillette. He was one of the directors, and the other was um, Wilfred Jackson. He had gone from being an animator to a director. So Wilfred Jackson's music room was on the first floor, and then uh, his composer was um, Frank Churchill. And then on the second floor, that was Bert Gillette, and his composer was a fellow by the name of uh, Bert Lewis. And when you came into the front of the Hyperion studio, um, Jackson's music room would have been on the left-hand side. There would have been a staircase that would have taken you up to the second floor, um, and then if you had gone to the left of the staircase towards the back of the building, there was an archway. If you went through that archway, it broke off into a hallway to your left and a hallway to your right. And so the hallway was up against the back of the building. Um, just to the left of that archway was the uh, the sweat box where they would go in and review uh, clips of, clips of uh, animated film. Uh, Walt Disney's office, if you went up the stairs, you would go up a few stairs, turn to your left, go up some more stairs, come to a landing, and then if you did two right-hand turns, you would go down a hallway and towards Walt Disney's office. So Animators Building Number 1 was, was really the, the big project because now they were really starting to expand. Mickey was gaining in popularity. He had to hire more staff. Um, so there were all the animators were in that building now. Um, Ink and Paint was in the original building that fronted Hyperion. And then Roy's offices and, and his accounting staff were, were in that building, the original building on Hyperion as well. And then right beside the L-shaped building, we had the soundstage. So the studio had their own soundstage that they could record music on. They had um, classes for the animators at nighttime on that soundstage. And eventually that's the soundstage where Walt Disney enacted out his idea for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I, I liked your, a story you told where Walt's office had two doors. So his secretary would think he was in the office. But exactly. Then, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah, no, so what happened was in, uh, in 1934, they added uh, what, what Walt called Animators Building Number 2, or the Shorts Building, and that was to the north of the uh, Animators Building Number 1. So what Walt Disney had done was he actually put a door in his, his own office, and that door went into a, a little area that had on the right-hand side like a little kitchenette, and on the left-hand side it had his private uh, bathroom and private shower, and then it had a door that went into... Um, another room, and, and that room was actually where Walt Disney had gathered the artists that he wanted to start flushing out the idea of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So uh, I think there was probably many, many occasions where the secretary was ringing his phone or the secretary would come in the door and Walt would be gone because that, that little five or six stair staircase and that door went into the Schwartz building, and that was sort of Walt's private entrance into that building. So I'm sure on many occasions he would disappear into there because eventually what they did as well, they had two screening rooms set up in that building, so he would be off watching. Uh, you know, they, they didn't use the sweat box under the stairs anymore at that point in time. He'd be watching um, the animated sequences for review in, in projection rooms in that building. So he'd often, I, I imagine, would wander away just to see what was going on, what the guys were working on, went to go see a sweat box session, and the secretary would come into the room, and, and Walt would, would know where, you know where to, to be found. But what's really interesting about that room as well is, is during our research, I actually found through an Internet auction um, a picture of Walt Disney sitting on a sofa with one of the giant Charlotte Clark Mickey Mouse dolls. And I, I threw the photo, I, I purchased the photo, got it, did a high-resolution scan, threw the image out to my research group of about five people, and I said, where was this picture taken? Anybody know and, uh, you know, some of my guys came back and said, oh, they thought it was he's, he's in the NBC uh, sort of green room waiting to go on air because he did a, a little Mickey Mouse 
uh, Theater of the Stars. I can't remember the name of it, but they did a little Mickey Mouse radio program there for a while. And I thought, I said to the group, I said, you know, I, I really think that that's probably in his office because if you look at the style of the couch, if you look at the carpet, if you look at the walnut paneling, that sort of jives with, with what his office furniture and decor looked like. And then we were eventually able to secure a copy of Blueprints for Animators Building Number 1 and the Shorts Building. And sure enough, it shows a staircase in Walt's office. And that's, that's exactly the picture that we're looking at, is Walt sitting beside on a couch beside those stairs that went into uh, the Shorts Building. So I, I get a real kick out of locating and then and then putting all the pieces of the puzzle together it's uh it's it's quite exhilarating actually yeah it's you're sort of like a csi of 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 disney history yeah that's what i that's what i said <laughs> at the uh the museum presentation i said it's csi for disney geeks yeah. and that and that's exactly what it is you know you get a little you get a picture and, and what's really cool about my group of guys so there's uh, gunner and hans perk paul sorakowski timothy suzanne suzanne and, and uh um, Dave, Dave Smith, they're, they're part of my little research team. And what's really cool is, you know, we'll come up with a photograph and then we throw the, the photograph out to the group for discussion and we're all trying to pinpoint exactly where that photograph was taken. And, and, and you can look at the people that are in the picture and say, okay, well, he started working at the studio on this year and this person left the studio on that year so we can narrow it down to the time frame. And then based on the different architectural elements that we may be able to see in the background, we're we're pretty good. I think we've you know we've we've had access to well over a thousand photographs of uh, the Hyperion Studio, and, and we've been pretty good about um, you know pinpointing where certain pictures was taken. In one instance, Paul Sorokowski, there's a fellow in a room who's out of sync. So we presume, okay, maybe he's washing cells, or maybe he's doing something with film. And then we there's a window, and you can see a little bit of a building out back. So just based on that little bit of information, Paul was able to pinpoint on our schematic diagrams exactly where that picture was taken. It was it was taken out back of the, uh, the soundstage. There was a, a smaller building, sort of a, um, a woodworking shop, and it was part of this little shop area. And and what's really cool is on a on a, one of the building permits that we were able to get a copy of, it said addition of a cell washer's room, and then it gave the dimensions. And then based on just being able to view two walls in that room, Paul was able to calculate the measurements and figure out that they exactly matched the measurements that were on the blueprint. And then on the blueprint where the room was located, it matched up directly if you looked out the window of the building that we were able just to see a little bit of in the background. That's amazing. Let's talk yeah, about it, it. It's, it's really cool when you, when you come up with a little discovery like that. It's like, holy cow, yeah, that's exactly where it is. You know, fantastic job, Paul. Yeah. And all the other guys on my team are like that as well, Gunner and, and Hans and, and Dave. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to be involved with a group of guys like that because it's, it's, it's great. And you know what's really neat is none of this stuff has ever been published anywhere before. You know, nobody has taken a real in-depth look at Hyperion and how the physical plant grew as the company grew with their innovations and their technology and, and the films that they were doing. So it's, it's really fascinating because for me, you know, I've been involved with this since the 1980s, um, being a collector and, and sort of a researcher and writer, and um, to, to come across uncharted, uncharted land, so to speak, it's it's really quite thrilling to be able to put some of these pieces of the puzzle together. It is, it is, and and it's yeah, because it, this is all new for all of us. 
Um, yeah, it's, and, and like I said, you know, a, a lot of the, the major books on Hyperion, or a lot of the major books on the studio, they might have a couple of paragraphs on Hyperion or, you know, some of the interviews that Didier has been publishing in his series of books. You know, you'll have somebody make a couple of comments. What I'm trying to do with, with the Hyperion book is I'm trying to let the artists tell the story of the history of that studio through their own eyes much like the Walt Disney Family Museum does with Walt's story. It's Walt telling the narrative. So you've got lots of audio clips from Walt from television and radio appearances where he's talking about the different aspects of the company. That's what I'm trying to do with the book. So instead of me telling you about that historic night where they did the synchronization sound experiment, I've got Walt Disney quotes telling you that story, and I've got Wilfred Jackson telling that story, and I've got Ub Iwerks telling that story, and then combine that with, uh, the schematic diagrams that we've done, you know, we've charted the physical expansion of that studio for the course of almost 15 years. So it's really cool to see, you know, my vision for the book is, or our vision for the book is, you know, do it by year and start off with a, a schematic diagram showing you what was built at the site at that particular point in time or what buildings were added to the site at that particular point in time and then go into a discussion of what they did that year, whether it was art classes or whether it was the story department came about or they started to do personality animation or the sweat box or, you know, dialogue or whatever it happens to be. Tell that, tell that story through the eyes of the people that work there. And, um, and then supplement the text with photographs. And I've had access, like I said, to just a, a bundle of really rare photographs that some of them have never been published before and some of them haven't been published since they were first published back in the 1930s. So it's a real fascinating look at, at the studio and the accomplishments. And like I said, what they accomplished there really set the foundation for things that they would accomplish later on in life. And if you look at the company today, you know, they draw on those characters that they created 70 or 80 years ago, Snow White, Pinocchio, Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. You know, so that's why I really do believe it was the foundation of an empire. Oh, yeah. They, they survived the ages, whereas, you know, Coco the Clown, Felix the Cat, that were huge at the same time, are, are pretty much forgotten now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's because Walt, Walt was always looking at a way, what could he do to plus? It's, you know, you always hear these things, you know, where Walt Disney says, how, you know, how could I plus that? And, that? and that's exactly the same standpoint he took with animation in the early days. How can we make that better? Okay, we'll use synchronized sound. Then we'll use, we'll start incorporating more dialogue. Okay, then let's start to use music. Okay, let's do personality animation now, where the characters aren't just doing gags. Let's put them in a story and give them, and give them personality. And then, you know, the exclusive agreement that he got in 1932 with Technicolor to use their three-color process for a couple of years, you know, and then eventually work their way up to, to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So he was always looking at, at going the next step and, and there was a quote where he said, you know, if we ever become uh, stale or if we ever try to stand on our achievements, the studio is going to die because we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep pushing ourselves. We have to keep challenging ourselves. And that's, that's exactly what he did. You know, he would, he would walk into a room, um, who was it, Oliver Wallace, for example, and, and say, you know what, we're going to do this little uh, propaganda cartoon. It's called Your Fear is Faith. I need a song. I need you to write me a song because it's got to be funny. And that's what he was left with. You know, so then Oliver Wallace is sitting there scratching his head going, how the heck am I going to come up with something like that? But he did. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a hugely successful song that went on to sell millions of records and, and, 
you know, it became a real hit, and that cartoon in 1943 won an Academy Award. But he was like that. He would walk into a room, and he would give you a problem, and then, and then he would walk away, and he would expect you to come up with a solution to that problem or, or an idea how to better whatever the problem was that he presented. Now, the people who knew Walt Disney talk, talk about working for him, one of the consistent statements is that it was like being part of a family. So what was the atmosphere at the Hyperion Studio like, and how did Walt and Roy foster the sense of family despite you know, the long hours and cramped quarters? Well, I think the, uh, you know, I think the cramped quarters, the close working conditions, is what contributed a lot to the creativity because everyone was crammed in such a small space. You know, eventually, eventually they bought um, over 20, it was about 22 or 24 pieces of property in that area, and the studio was just spread over this, you know, block-long area. But everybody worked in, in close proximity to one another. So if you and I were sitting as animators or animator, animator's assistant in a room, and I came up with a new technique or idea, it was very simple for me to lean over and say, you know, hey, Michael, look at this. Look at, look at what I just did. So there was a real atmosphere for sharing and creativity and practical jokes. And, you know, you read the accounts of that time, and it was like working in a sort of a college atmosphere. You know, it was a fraternity. It was um, a lot of fun and games, a lot of practical jokes. You know, they would put little bits of cheese under the, the light boards, and they would, you know, the light board would heat up the cheese, and it would just stink up the joint. Or, you know, they would put little buckets of water up on the on the door so when somebody came through you know they'd get doused with water or you know Roy Williams they played a gag on him and they they did something with his food and it made him have to go to the bathroom really badly and they had locked all the doors of the bathroom so he you know as he's making his emergency run towards the washroom he couldn't get in and another fellow they changed the the labels on the food that he had he used to like to eat canned uh, uh, canned fruit cocktail and and one day the guys changed the label and turned it into sauerkraut or something like that. He, he couldn't understand why he bought a can of fruit cocktail that had sauerkraut in it. Um, you know, they had a little turtle, the story of the turtle that would sun itself out in the in the uh, in, in the lawn area at the front of the studio. And and the joke was the traffic department, they're the people that would run the messages and that back and forth. They were so slow, they put a little title card on the back of the the turtle's shell that said traffic department on it. So it was a real a real fun place, you know, it was a real fun place to work, and they, they lost a lot of that intimacy when they moved to Burbank, because, you know, even though Walt wanted to build this, you know, just magical place to work in Burbank, and he incorporated all these great ideas, it really spread everybody out, and, and you know, on the different floors in the new animation building in Burbank, there was a secretary on each level, and you sort of had to be able to get past the secretary in order to go socialize with somebody, and and I think that that they lost a lot of creativity when they moved to Burbank just because people were spread out more. And, and you know, it was a beautiful place to work, and it was state-of-the-art, and, and Walt really was trying to create this utopia, I think, for his animators. But, but I think in some regards it sort, of, it sort of backfired because it really spread the staff out, and, and they lost that, some of that interaction, and then, therefore, they lost some of the, the creative contact that they had with one another. But Hyperion it was a magical place to work. If you read, read, read all of these interviews, it was, um, you know, people didn't think twice about putting in, you know, 12-hour days or, or working, you know, when Snow White was coming down to the wire, working seven days a week, you know, 15 hours a day. And, and everyone just, they did it because they wanted to, not necessarily because they had to. 
They believed in the vision. They believed in the, the creative genius that was Walt Disney. They bought into his ideas, and they just, you know, they went, they went full bore. You know, you, you talk about the creativity. You know, when you think about it, when Steamboat Willie debuted in 1929, and in 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves debuted, when you look at the achievements in sound animation, storytelling that took place at Hyperion Studio in the eight years between those films, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's actually really incredible. Actually, Steamboat Willie came out in 28, but um, it, it really was an incredible 15-year uh, time period there. Um, you know, just in Snow White alone, they used 1,500 different hues of color just in Snow White. You know, they had the multiplane camera, which cost $75,000 to build. You know, and we're talking, you know, during the Great Depression, right, you know, the 1930s. Um, you look at the animation of Steamboat Willie, and like I said at the beginning, it's that squash and strut sort of crude, primitive animation. And by the time you get to Snow White, you're using beautiful technicolor color. You're using, you know, you've got story. You've got songs that are integrated into the story. You've got these fantastic a multitude of personalities that are part of the film, um, just even the dialogue. Um, you look at Bambi and the number of words that are spoken in Bambi, and I, I can't remember the number now, but I remember Frank Thomas talking about that, the story of Bambi and how little dialogue there is in Bambi. But they portrayed that story just beautifully. And um, it, it's really fascinating to see what they, they have accomplished. And I don't think you know, necessarily that that level of creativity or innovation has been really, has been really matched. I, I really believe that what they accomplished there has never been, been replicated anywhere else. Now, the story goes that the success of Snow White allows Walt and Roy to build the Burbank Studios. How early did Walt start thinking about a newer and larger studio? Uh, I'd have to refer to my notes, but I know, I know at the very beginning what they were looking at was they were sort of running out of room to grow. So they were thinking about maybe putting a tunnel underneath Hyperion to get to the other side of the street where the annex had been built. So the annex was where they um, had trained staff. They used that as their training facility, and also the comic strip department was there. Uh, the in-betweeners worked out of there. Um, and they sort of put the kibosh on that idea. And, and what they started thinking about was, okay, well, can we move into a facility that, that's already been built? And um, they had first gone to look at the old Warner Brothers cartoon studio. And Bill Garrity, who was Walt Disney's um, sound engineer, he came actually from Sinophone um, back in the Steamboat Willie days. He was sent out by Pat Powers to set up the Sinophone system at the, at the studio at TechHard initially. Um, Bill Garrity was Walt, Walt's right-hand man. He was the studio manager at the time. And him and Walt sat down, I think it was uh, 30, 37, 38, they started talking about the idea. And then when the receipts from Snow White came in, um, they had the money to, to finally do something. So Garrity went out and he looked at the Warner Brothers studio and he reported back, you know, it's, it's exactly set up like Hyperion was. It was all disjointed and you know, it would cost several hundred thousand dollars to, to put it into the condition that they wanted it. So then they started looking at property in the area, and they found um, in the city of Burbank, that 51-acre acre tract of land in Burbank, and it was it used to be a polo field um, that was used by the Black Fox Military Academy. So they, they put in an offer to, to buy that, that piece of property, and then, they, uh, then the, the argument started about how to go about designing the studio, and it's quite interesting because I've had the 
the privilege of being able to look at Bill Garrity's personal diaries that he kept during the time. And he talks about the heated discussions that he had with Walt over the layout and the design of the studio and, and how they were, in effect, building a small city. And that Walt was extremely frustrated with the situation and, and he was sort of struggling with how to do the layout. But, you know, they, they eventually were able to work out this, this great idea for, for how the plot of land was going to be laid out. And, um, Garrity supervised construction of the site. He actually moved up to the site in, I think it was late 1938, early 1939. And, uh, they just went at it. What's really interesting in, in some of the pictures that I have, you can actually see they made a three-dimensional model using blocks of wood that were cut to the approximate sizes of the buildings that they wanted to construct. And then they had a, a layout of the 51 acres and, and Walt is sitting there moving these blocks of wood around that plan to see what would, you know, what building, what, what, where the soundstage should be located, where ink and paint should be located, where, you know, publicity should be located. And it's really neat because in another set of photographs we have, uh, Walt Disney's in his, his new office in, in Animators Building Number 1 and rolled up in the background leaning against the, the wall are the, uh, the actual blueprints. And then in, in another picture you can see um, he had his animators do drawings of the buildings and some of these are leaning up against the front of his desk. So it was a real process to try to come up with the layout of how they wanted that studio built and um, then they you know they started moving up there in uh, 1939 um, they had a bunch of the buildings at Hyperion were moved up to uh, up to the Burbank site so they dismantled animators I'm sorry the shorts building and the features building at Hyperion uh, along with the box cars the box cars fronted uh, Griffith Boulevard and that's where the background department was located they were two long skinny buildings so those two buildings, the Shorts building, the Features building, the Annex complex across the street was all chopped up, and then the, uh, the bungalow, all those buildings were eventually moved to the Burbank site. And then in 1943, they sold um, half the property to Thomas, I'm sorry, not Thomas Curtis, his name was, Thomas Curtis was the son, uh, no, Thomas Curtis was the name of the company, so it was Thomas Curtis Laboratories bought the western part of the property, which was Animators Building Number 1, and then the uh, the front building, the original studio building along Hyperion, and then the east side of the property was bought by the William Thompson uh, Manufacturing Company, and they did uh, they manufactured vitamins, and that was uh, about 1943. You t you told a funny story I remember about you know as buildings were moved, there was that little staircase to nowhere that the new owners couldn't figure out why was it yeah. there. Yeah, and that was uh, Eric Curtis, who's the son of Thomas Curtis. Um, it, it's really neat because we try to track down people that either work there, which is pretty much an impossibility because they've all passed away now, although we were able to uh, interview Don Lusk. He's, he's in his hundreds, and Ruthie Thompson, she's in her hundreds. We were able to interview them and take them our schematic diagrams and some of the photographs of Hyperion. And then what we've tried to do is track down the people that worked in the buildings that remained at Hyperion once the studio vacated the property. So we've, you know, we were able to make contact with a fellow named Eric Curtis. And he said what always puzzled him was what they called the staircase to nowhere. Because in his, his dad took over Walt Disney's office. And of course we had that staircase that I mentioned previously in the interview that connected Walt's own office to the Shorts building while the Shorts building was moved to Burbank. So that, that, that door was basically boarded up because if you opened that door, it would have been a two-story pavement fall or a two-story fall to the pavement down below. So 
so um, Eric always was was quizzical about the staircase to nowhere because there was a door, but it, it didn't go anywhere. And then the other funny story that he related was uh, the uh, the William Thompson Company next door with their vitamin production. They did vitamin production in the old soundstage, and sometimes the powder from the vitamin uh, compounds that they were making would seep through the walls, Walt Disney's original office walls, into his father's into his father's office, and he was always puzzled by, you know, how how it managed to get through the walls and what a mess it actually made in the office. <laughs> so you talked about, you know, the the difference in atmosphere from moving from Hyperion to Burbank. How did how did the everybody feel about working in the Burbank studios? It was state of the art. There was lots of room. Were, did they feel good about it being in this beautiful, lush, new studio? Well, I, think, I think some people. I think I think some of the the so-called magic was lost. I think you know because I've read some interviews where people say you know they moved into to Burbank and it was more it was beautiful, but in some respects it was sterile. And um, you know I, I think that it really did have this negative impact and and. Whereas before you had people that were all squished together in these tiny little rooms um, at Hyperion, now you had big expansive offices and and you know there were different wings for the animators and and I just think that um, it, it did lose some of its its magic and some of the creativity you know was lost there in, in the early years and then of course we had the strike you know the strike came about you know people weren't happy with the disparity in wages and you know so it's you know Burbank was was a great place to work and they did accomplish some fantastic things at Burbank there's no denying that but I think initially some of the magic was was lost in the move it was a great great new facility but it wasn't the the, the close quarters that that Hyperion was so you know I think that really had a, a negative impact on on some of the things that were done in the early years anyhow after the move to Burbank now you mentioned that the remaining buildings at Hyperion Studios were um, bought does anything of Hyperion Studios exist today? Well, it was, uh, I believe it was October of 1966. Basically, everything was bulldozed that was left. Um, so there was um, the original Hyperion building, the animators building number one, the sound stage, the ink and paint department, uh, one of the storage vaults, I believe, was still there. All of that was bulldozed in um, October of 1966, about three months actually before Walt Disney passed away. And the only building that, that we know that exists now, and the studio had bought, Walt Disney had bought an apartment just to the north of the original um, property. Uh, they housed the story department in there for a while. Um, all of that stuff was bulldozed. So the only building that I know of that still stands in that area is the um, is a duplex on Griffith Park Boulevard about halfway between Hyperion and St. George to the north. There's a little duplex there that still stands, and, and we're not quite sure what that building was used for. We know they bought it and they used it, but we're not sure if the story department was in there or, or what department. But that's the only building that we know of that still stands in that neighborhood that was used by the Walt Disney Studio. Now, at the studio in Burbank, they put the features and the shorts building together, that building still exists, and I believe some people have gone through that building on a D23 tour. And then the bungalow still exists, but I believe the annex complex was torn down and the two boxcars, they were joined together, and I believe it was the publicity department that operated out of the boxcars at Burbank. I believe those 
those two uh, those two buildings that were combined into one, they were eventually torn down as well. So if we went to the location of the old Hyperion Studios today, what would we find? A big old ugly supermarket. <laughs> and uh, it, when they tore down the property, it became a Mayfair shopping center, a grocery store. And then they tore down Mayfair and they put in a Gelson's. So it's a Gelson supermarket that exists. And Gelson's is set quite far back off the front of Hyperion. It's set at the back of the property. So... Um, I believe Walt Disney's studio is one of the driveways, like the original location of the the first studio is one of the driveways that takes you into the parking lot. I've actually got a schematic that shows the layout of Gelson's and superimposed over that is the layout of the physical Disney studio, the physical plant showing where all their little buildings were located. And, and pretty much the majority of the old Walt Disney studio that used to stand there would be in the parking lot areas. One of the things that my group thought would be really neat is to do pick an anniversary, the anniversary of Steamboat Willie or the creation of the studio or the birth of Walt Disney or the death of Walt Disney, whatever you want, and actually get Gelson's to buy into the idea of marking out where the first building was in their parking lot, you know, through whatever, through tape or whatever, and then and then do a little historical display or something, you know, that day on that site, just just to let people know what was there, you know, uh, so many years ago. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah, it, I think you get a you get a lot of turnout. Uh, I, I think I think it would be a, a real neat event. You know, you could do a little historical tour of of the neighborhood, perhaps, and then uh, have some sort of little historical exhibit set up. Maybe you know, at nighttime when the sun goes down, you could you could do the uh, the a reenactment of the, that sound experiment that happened in in 1928. You know, set up a projector and and put it onto a screen, or you know, I, I actually thought that that would that would have been a neat idea to do at my presentation at the museum is call a half a dozen people down from the audience, give them some noisemakers, and then project Steamboat Willie up onto the onto the screen and let them go at it with their with their noisemakers. You know, but uh, my my presentation was too long as it was, so I sort of nixed that idea because that would have taken another probably 15 minutes to to organize. Oh, I don't think you would have gotten any complaints. Well, <laughs> <laughs> At least not from the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know that audience was great. That audience was uh, was very appreciative. You know, I, I sort of got a kick out of the you know the CSI for Disney geeks. Everybody got a good laugh, and and as you know, what I did was at the presentation we would take a photograph. And then we would dissect that photograph. So if it was animators sitting at their drawing boards, we were able to, you know, zoom in on one of the slides and, and show you what they were actually working on. We would we would take that animation drawing, and then we were able to actually identify the the, the film that they were working on. Or um, in the one picture of the story department, we saw that one little piece of paper that was sort of you could just barely get a glimpse of it on a shelf that was was in the room, and we were able to zoom in on that item. And figure out that it was uh, from a Mickey Mouse. It was the original artwork for a uh, Mickey Mouse newspaper strip from February of 1931. And I sort of, sort of got a kick out of it because I, I teased the audience, as you recall, with that one uh, item where I showed the orchestra being directed, yeah. or orchestra being directed by Frank Churchill in the sound stage. And and I said, oh yeah, we know it was from the animated sequence of Hot Chocolate Soldiers, which was done for a uh, Jimmy Durante film. I think it was called Hollywood Party, or I can't remember the name of the film. And people were sort of amazed that we were able to figure that out. And I told them, well, that was because we were able to zoom in on Frank Churchill's music. 
and then we couldn't really make out the name of the the music, but we were able to make out a, a few of the notes that were on the sheet music. Mm-hmm. And one of the people in my group knows how to play the piano, so he played the the musical notes and was able to determine what the the name of the animated short was. And people were ooing and aahing, and then I yeah. had to break the bad news to them and tell them, no, that's me just playing a joke on you. The way that we figured out that it was from that film was because that was a press photo and that was the slug that was on the back of the photo. Yeah, yeah I did not fall for that one because I was are looking you, at that sure? thinking, yes, because I thought, are you sure? no, you're too far away and <laughs> the angle, I thought there was no way. <laughs> but you know, you know, it's, but, but that's what we do, you know, and you're absolutely right. We didn't do it for that one, but that's what we do with our photographs. We're able to, you know, if you get a high enough resolution picture, you can really blow up that photograph, and you can see what they're working on. You can see the artwork or that little Mickey Mouse newspaper strip. That Mickey Mouse yeah. newspaper strip, it was only one panel on that long strip that we were able to, to see, and, and we were able to figure it out. So, you know, these photographs, they really do yield um, a lot of fantastic information. It's like the one picture I had of Walt Disney with his uh, Packard Roadster Deluxe. I was just uh, going to spring that up. You know, yeah, that, that beautiful picture that I don't think has been ever published anywhere. And and what I do was I had such a, a high-resolution image of that photograph that I was looking in the chrome detail on the car to see what I could see that was reflected in that chrome. And it's really neat because you can see parts of Hyperion Avenue. You can see the person that took that photograph of Walt Disney. So that that's what we really do. You know, We really get in there and try to dissect the information that we have, and, and it comes up with uh, some amazing things. Yeah, that, that that is remarkable uh, how you, you've been able to find out these details and, uh, from tiny, tiny little scraps of information and photos. Yeah, and that, that really speaks to the, the group of people that I have helping me. They're a real dedicated group. They really uh, love Disney history, and, and they love being part of the project. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for their involvement because they've added a lot of value to uh, to what we've done. We've come, we've come up with some amazing discoveries. So it's, uh, it's it's been fun. It's been fun. Now you you talked about your books. So now what's the title of your book going to be? Uh, we haven't really decided yet because I don't have a publisher. So um, usually it's the publisher that makes that decision. But we were thinking, you know, foundation of an empire, the Walt Disney Studio, 1925 to 1939, something like that. Um, I think the book is probably at least um, a year away from being being finished because I've sort of been. Um, working on a revised edition of my first book, which was Tunes at War, that you mentioned earlier in the broadcast. Um, I'm retitling that book as Service with Character, and I'm just doing the final edit of the manuscript right now, and then it'll be off to layout, and then it'll be going to the uh, the printer. So hopefully that book will be wrapped up in the, in, in the next month or two. And then when, once that's done, I'll, I'll get back to Hyperion and, and devote my, my time to that. I've got about five or six different you know, projects, ideas for small booklets or monographs or, or books that are on the go right now. And that's my problem. You know, I'll, I'll sit at the computer at night after the, the kids and everybody have gone to bed, start doing some research, and then you go off on a tangent that leads you to something else. And, and then that leads you to something else. And, you know, two hours later, you're five miles away from where you originally started. And um, that's my problem. I can't, I have a hard time focusing on my projects because there's just so much neat stuff still to discover that I come across. Well, now, how can our listeners learn more about your projects? I, um, I've got two blogs that I operate, so people can always visit my blogs. I've got tunesatwar.blogspot.com, 
and Tunes at War is T-O-O-N-F-A-T-W-A-R. And that blog looks at the, uh, the history of the Disney studio during World War II. My main areas of interest are, are early Walt Disney history, early Walt Disney collectibles, and then the Disney studio during the war years. So basically, I'm interested in Walt Disney's life from his birth up until about 1945. You know, don't get me wrong, I love Disneyland, I, I love what they did at Disneyland, I love a lot of the live-action films that he did, but my main areas of interest are 1930s Disney history and memorabilia, and then Disney World War II history and memorabilia. So on the, the memorabilia side, I've got about uh, 350 1930s, predominantly Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck items, and I showcase a lot of that early history and that type of merchandise on my other blog, and that's vintage Disney memorabilia.blogspot.com and um, and then all the military stuff, items out of my own collection or other little bits that I discover along the way or items out of my friends' collections, they're done on the Tunes at War blog. So if people want to contact me, they can reach me either through my blogs, they can send an email to WaltDisneyResearch at Yahoo.com or service with character at Yahoo.com, either of those email addresses. So during the the Hyperion Studios short 14 years, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Mickey and Minnie Mouse, Donald Duck, Snow White, Pinocchio, and many more beloved characters were given life. In many ways, the Hyperion Studios represents the golden age of Walt Disney's imagination. David, thank you for taking us on this walk through the corridors of Walt and Roy's Hyperion Studios. Uh, it's my pleasure, Michael. Anytime yes. you want to talk about Disney history or, uh, or uh, Disney merchandise or... Some of the Disney personalities, by all means, give me a phone call because, as you know, I love to talk about this sort of thing, and I love to share my knowledge with like-minded people, so it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on your show. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you, and we will have links to your blogs in our show notes, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show again to talk about some of your other projects and, no, and more in, in Disney history. And that... Good, good. Thank you, and thank you for being on the show. And that concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening and be magical. <laughs> 